Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Unorthodoxy podcast and to the third episode in our series on the Enneagram of Mimetic Desire. My name is Duncan Rayburn, and now that I've given you a broad overview of this Enneagram of Mimetic Desire, I can now get into some of the fascinating details. In developing this version of the Enneagram, I started realizing fairly early on that there are interesting groupings of numbers or enneotypes, which represent principles that we learn through studying mimetic psychology. And this means that while each number is connected to a particular principle, the principle in question also applies to each of the enneotypes in a particular way. So the format that I'll be following in this and the following four episodes will be to explain the principle and then look at how it applies to each enneotype. So let's get started with the first grouping, which is that of enneotypes 1 and 4. Enneotypes 1 and 4 represent the principle of metaphysical desire. To explain this principle, it helps to take another look at the story of the so-called fall of man in Genesis 3. As the story goes, God tells the first people, Adam and Eve, that the Garden of Eden is essentially their playground. They can eat any fruit they like, which is symbolic of the fact that they can really, really have free reign. They can enjoy each other as much as they like. They can look after the paradise that has been placed in their care. There is only one rule. The fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, is out of bounds. And this is how it is actually with most rules. The thou shalt not exclude very few things and leave basically a whole universe of possibilities open. As the story goes, Eve is out for a stroll one day and she is met by a serpent in the garden. Why a serpent? Uh, well, symbolically speaking, the serpent is the stark reminder that paradise is always corrupted from within. The possibility of the intrusion of chaos into the world of order is always present. And how does this chaos enter paradise? Well, the serpent sows doubt into Eve's mind in a very particular way. He first challenges the rule that God set up. He asks if God really said that it wasn't okay to eat the fruit from the tree of knowledge. And then he effectively tells Eve that if she does eat of that fruit, she will become like God, knowing good and evil. Eve does then eat the fruit, and the rest is, well, not exactly history, but certainly one of the profoundest keys to human history and psychology that you will find in any story. Here we find the first text in human history that directly deals with mimetic desire. Eve has, to begin with, no interest in the fruit, but the serpent implants the desire for it. Eve's desire to eat the fruit doesn't come from within her, but from outside of her. And the nature of this desire is hugely significant. Eve perceives, because of the serpent's crafty sales pitch, that God is withholding from her the possibility of being more than she is. She thinks that there's a chance that she might actually be like God, that is, possess God's absolute being by eating that fruit. She actually envies God. God has become, in this strange equation of desire, a rival. It's a commonplace, it's a commonplace um, idea to think that pride comes before a fall, but the culprit in this story, along with pride, is envy. 
In its simplest sense, to envy means to desire something that someone else possesses. In the case of Eve, the quality in question is something like godishness, not godliness. And acquiring this quality seems to involve the breaking of a rule, the transgressing of a boundary which amounts to a misunderstanding of the limits of her own being. The boundary is perceived by Eve, unhealthy enneotype for that she seems to be, as inauthentic. She wants to give an alternate identity a go. In his studies, Gerard notices that this pattern of copying desire is everywhere, and he starts to notice that this imitation of desire begins in one place and often ends somewhere else. In other words, desire exists along a continuum. At the one end of the continuum, at the sort of tame end of this continuum, is what Gerard refers to as external mediation. This is a fancy way of saying that the desire of someone else is imitated, but the psychological distance between the one doing the imitating and the one being imitated remains in place. There is a hierarchy here, and that, that hierarchy is a good thing. A PhD student will imitate her supervisor, for example, to a certain extent. She will learn from what the dear professor has to say and will presume, if she wants to do well, that she knows less than the person she's supposed to be looking up to. This is external mediation, which is also hugely significant in theological uh, terms, in that in classical theology, the idea is that the imitation of God goes one way, not the other. That would be the most pronounced example of external mediation. But external mediation can become internal mediation. This is on the other side of the continuum. That would be when the hierarchy goes away. Two friends imitating each other is internal mediation. The joke in the story of Eve thinking that she might be capable of becoming like God by eating some magic fruit is in the fact that it's a bit like a snail imagining that it'll become the next Einstein by eating some magic leaves. The inherent impossibility never occurs to Eve or that proverbial snail. She doesn't see the obvious insurmountability of external mediation and assumes instead that internal mediation will be made possible by a little rule-breaking and a little meal. Internal mediation can be friendly, of course, but sometimes, as in the case of Eve, the imitated desire is felt just a little bit too strongly. And then what is wanted is not just the object of the desire, the fruit, so to speak, but rather the actual being of the other. Internal mediation of this kind is what Gerard calls metaphysical desire. It's not the desire for metaphysics, oddly enough, although I can't really fathom anyone not wanting metaphysics. Rather, it's the desire for the being of the other. There is a confusion of identities here. And this is when the desire of the other has been so absorbed by the subject that the subject, in a way, assumes that she is the other or that she deserves the place of the other. Take the example I mentioned before about friends who fall in love with the same girl. On the surface, this just looks like the two friends have similar taste in girls. But a closer look at this will reveal the presence, if only subtly, of envy. Sometimes the envy is mutual, but usually one of the friends will be more prone to this imitative envy. And so what is going on here is not so much that the same girl is being desired, but that the one friend actually wants to be the other friend. 
The chances that this will turn into rivalry, and sometimes even a very bitter rivalry, are pretty good. Two friends will seemingly squabble over the girl, but the truth is a lot more sinister. They are fighting over their very existence. There is a metaphor for this in nature. Often, the various rivalries between suitors over potential mates involves a fight to the death. The competition is not just about who gets laid at the end of the day, but who gets to have a place in the world. But this competition, we should remember, is the result of a misunderstanding. It's a failure to notice that the desire that fuels the competition is borrowed. Sometimes, as Gerard mentions, and as is evident in at least a few psychological studies, this argument over being itself gets transformed into an intense desire for the other. In other words, sometimes, although clearly not always, and that's important to stress, metaphysical desire is experienced by one person as a homosexual desire for the person who is being imitated. There is a risk in mentioning this sort of thing because it risks the the reduction of all same-sex attraction to this observation, and that is certainly not what I want to do here. But it does seem to me that at least some same-sex attractions are rooted in a desire to be what the other is that has been translated for reasons that may not be clear because people are complicated into sexual desire. Metaphysical desire points to something that all of us experience, no matter our enneotype, which is an inherent sense of lack. Desire itself stems from a sense of lack. Advertising is particularly adept at capitalizing on this sense of lack in that it places before its audience not just an object of desire, but a kind of being that said object represents. I think of the cigarette advertisements that I first saw when I was a kid. The ads would show people really living it up, exploring the outdoors, adventuring, always laughing and smiling together as they lit up whatever brand they happened to be lighting up. Even as a kid, I couldn't fathom how being an explorer was connected to the need to purchase a cancer stick, but the marketing strategy clearly worked. As in those advertisements, the thing being sold was not an object, but a lifestyle. This is one of the essences of mimetic desire, that the object itself becomes symbolic of something far more profound, a sense of being that is desired. We all feel on some level that we are lacking something. This is what the different desires of each enneotype represent. If ones desire perfection, it is because they feel that they fall short. If twos desire to be loved, it is because they feel a lack of being loved. If threes desire to impress and to be valued for who they are, it is because they feel that they aren't the sort of person who would be valued for who they are, for their intrinsic being. Fours desire authenticity because they feel they aren't unique or special. Fives desire knowledge and competence because of the void of knowledge and competence that they experience. They feel unable to cope with the world apart from gaining knowledge and competence. Sixes want to feel safe because they feel unsafe and unsupported. Sevens want to keep their options open because they don't feel that they have the capacity to deal with constraints. Eights desire power and control because they feel unable to handle being vulnerable. Nines want to be at peace because of an intense feeling of a lack of peace. There is, as the relationship between desire and lack reveals, a fundamentally reactive aspect to our personalities. We are all, in a way, 
reacting to a part of ourselves that we feel is small and childish or childlike and underdeveloped. We develop all our coping mechanisms and our projections in response to this childish part of ourselves. To notice this is also to recognize that one part of ourselves has been developed to compensate for another part. So, for example, the Enneotype 5 will seek knowledge and competence, at least in part because of an unconscious sense of a lack of power, which is symbolized at 5's point of integration, namely point 8. With this in mind, we might be able to better identify what each Enneotype is compensating for through a kind of lopsided emphasis on only one aspect of personality. So, one's desire perfection, at least in part in response to the undernourishment of their joy. Two's desire to be needed, at least in part in response to the undernourishment of their authenticity and uniqueness. Three's desire to impress, at least in part in response to the undernourishment of their faith. Four's desire uniqueness, at least in part in response to the undernourishment of their goodness or sense of goodness. Five's desire competence, at least in part in response to the undernourishment of their strength. Sixes desire safety, at least in part in response to the undernourishment of their sense of belonging. Sevens desire adventure, and this is in part because of the undernourishment of their wisdom. Eights desire control, at least this is partly because of the undernourishment of their capacity to receive love. And nines desire peace, at least in part because of the undernourishment of their sense of importance. A rather fascinating byproduct of this sense of a lack of being is something that Nietzsche brought to light particularly well, and which Max Scheller has done an excellent job of discussing. I mean the idea of ressentiment. I use the French and thus risk mispronouncing it because the term doesn't exactly quite literally translate into the English resentment, although it is related to resentment. Probably the best way to discuss the idea is to refer to Aesop's famous parable, or fable rather, of the fox and the grapes. In that story, a sly fox has seen some delicious-looking grapes hanging from a high trellis, and he tries to get them to, to eat them. Trouble is, the grapes are too high, and the fox simply can't reach them. He can't get to the thing that he wants. So he walks away with an air of dignity and as he does this he utters something to the effect that the grapes are probably sour and so it wouldn't have really proved worth his while anyway to get them. So this is actually the story we get the phrase sour grapes from. The phrase isn't about the grapes clearly but about the fox's perception of the grapes and the process of ressentiment which amounts to the process of reordering the sentiments in relation to those grapes. The first thing we notice about the fox is that he is gifted for whatever reason. Typically, foxes are symbolic of slyness and quick thinking, but his gifts are ill-suited to the task before him. He may be gifted in one sense, but here in front of the grapes he is powerless. He's too short and he can't jump high enough. And in this situation, his powerlessness is the thing that defines him. He experiences the lack in his own being in terms of this weakness. But the fox does an interesting and somewhat surprising thing. The fox doesn't admit his failure, but instead projects his failure onto the grapes. From his perspective, the fault is not in him or in his stars, but in the object that he desired. 
he orders and reorders the sentiments to make himself out to be the hero and the grapes out to be the villains. He fails to be honest with himself about himself and blames something else, which is something that in the story is so obviously something that cannot be blamed. That is Rosantemar in a nutshell. Now, as both Nietzsche and Scheller discuss, the thing about Rosantemar is that it is a psychological process that can end up shaping our entire values system. Not along the lines of what is truly worth pursuing, but rather along the lines of what we value because of what we cannot attain. The grapes in the story, we should remember, are devalued not because of their inherent properties, but because the fox is too weak to get them. Examples of how this play out in human beings will be almost endless, and you can see how this plays out in the world everywhere. But let's take the institution of marriage as an example, as the symbol of the grapes, so to speak. A while ago, an IT guy came to my office, and while he was sorting out a computer dysfunction, he began to tell me about his failed marriage. I didn't ask him about his personal life, mind you, but my whole life I've had people come up to me and tell me their stories, sometimes total strangers like this particular IT guy who I had never met before this occurrence. Anyway, so this guy starts telling me about his failed marriage, and he doesn't have a great view of marriage in general. At one point, he, he has this tirade against the very institution of marriage. He may have a, had a point, you know, in a, in a way, marriages fail all the time and in great number, and even the marriages that do survive are commonly fraught with tensions and difficulties. The ideal here, the grapes, so to speak, would be the ideal of a loving relationship that is sustained by mutual self-giving and mutual desire for the betterment of the other person. And as this IT guy was quick to point out to me, this ideal seemed unreachable and was therefore not worth all the trouble. You know this spiel in various contexts, and certainly this hasn't been the only time I've heard someone denigrate the ideal. I'm thinking of how queer theorist Jack Halberstam has denigrated marriage, for example. But here is where Nietzsche and Scheller's insight is rather pertinent. The ideal is not criticized because it is impossible to attain. Rather, the ideal is criticized and then even denigrated because of those who have failed to attain the ideal. That is what you might call an ethics of ressentiment. Since an entirely new value emerges, not because of its positive content, but rather because of its negative content, because it is reactive. Often it's difficult to notice an ethics rooted in ressentiment, since the ethics emerges in a highly positive form. Nietzsche, in fact, thought that this was what Christian morality was, although Scheller does a brilliant job of taking Nietzsche's insight into ressentiment while also heavily criticizing Nietzsche's failure to recognize the ressentiment beneath his own denigration of Christian morality. Nietzsche envied the Christian solution to nihilism. He envied Christianity so much that he tried and failed to set up an entirely new moral framework in competition with the Christian framework. The thing to notice with ressentiment, especially in relation to the Enneagram of mimetic desire, is that it is rooted in envy. It is something that emerges fundamentally from a competitive mindset. In the story about the fox, the grapes are desirable because they belong to someone else. The desire for the grapes is a mimetic desire, and so the question must naturally arise. 
How do the values of each enneotype emerge out of Rosantimal? Ones value goodness and will tend to be rather serious in their pursuit of perfection. This virtue frequently emerges out of an envy of enneotype sevens who know how to have a good time and aren't in unhealthier states or usually too fussed with getting the details right or with following through with their commitments. Twos value love and will tend to serve others without giving a second thought, but they will tend to resent that very fourish sense of personal identity and uniqueness, and even that fourish attunement to their own desires. Threes will value the opinions of the crowd, often in response to the envy of sixes who tend to have a fairly natural capacity to fit in with the crowd without needing to change who they are. Fours commit to a self-styled way of being, often in envy of ones who seem to be quite capable of living entirely by the book. Fives seek understanding because it is the next best thing to actually being in charge, which is what eights usually are. Sixes want to find safety, and this often happens in envy of the nine-ish ability to feel just so perfectly at peace. Sevens want joy, but they envy the depth of fives. Eights want power, but they really envy the vulnerability of twos. And lastly, nines seek to be unruffled while secretly envying the three-ish ability to shine. As mimetic theory shows, when Enneagram teachers talk about integration, part of what they're pointing to is the necessity of ridding ourselves of resentiment. And at least part of what this means is being able to reverse the critique and turn it into praise. To understand what this means in greater depth and then also to begin to see how this relates to conflict and then resolve that conflict, we need to look at the second principle of the Enneagram of Mimetic Desire, which is the principle of reciprocity. That is something I'm going to tackle in the next episode. But first, it, I thought it would be helpful in the light of what has been said here to, to ask a few questions, basically as, a, as food for thought for you. If, if you are someone in the midst of mediating a difficult relationship, or maybe you are in the midst of conflict, here are some questions that may help you to get some insight into what's going on. 1. In what way might the conflict have arisen out of a sense of a lack of being? 2. Is there something in party A that exposes or calls into question that sense of a lack of being in party B? Could this be why party B is reacting so strongly or why resolution is so difficult to achieve? 3. In what way might envy be present while being masked as disdain, anger, or a refusal to listen? 4. Is resentiment rearing its ugly head, whereby party A seems to think less of party B because of a weakness within party A? So there you have it. I hope some of the insights from this episode have already sparked some ideas for you and, and helped you to perceive the world a little bit more Clearly, as I mentioned in the next episode, I'm going to be looking at what enneotypes 2 and 8 represent, namely the principle of reciprocity. I hope you will join me for that. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. Take care. <laughs>